We want to officially welcome you to Bridgeway Christian Church's Faith and Culture series. And we have so much that we want to talk about over these next four weeks. And we do believe that this has been worth our time, that this is worth your time, and that this is going to be honoring to our Lord and Savior. And so as all of you know, this series of Faith and Culture is on the specific issue of LGBTQ and sexual identity. And I think that we are all on the same page that this is something that is important to talk about and important to understand. It's a landscape that we are very aware of, but very unfamiliar with. And so we desire wisdom and we desire God's perspective on this. And so we desire to engage these conversations with courage, with humility, with prayerfulness and with a convicted civility. And we're seeking to know how that we can learn, grow and live intentionally with an informed and convicted civility. And so it always begins with individuals. It goes on to transformed hearts and it goes on to powerful vision. And we're looking to partner with the Lord on this. And we just wanna remind you about a couple things. This is gonna be material that for a lot of us is gonna be challenging. And that is part of the point of this experience. If you came here tonight thinking that this was gonna be all comfortable, you were wrong. And it's okay to be comfortable, um, but don't release that tension just yet. L listen and go through this. Listen deeply and don't block out anything that's being said. Don't block out things prematurely. Let Pastor Lance share his full heart on the matter as we are all here to learn. And what we're talking about isn't new. We are not the first people. It might be new for you, but we are the first after a long end of many brilliant people that have already been talking about this nationwide and worldwide. So why are we doing it as a church? Is because we believe that the church should speak into men and women's identity and how they experience the love and transformation of Jesus Christ, amen? And we also believe that we bring to the table a, a, a few different things. Hopefully, we will be bringing fresh perspective, clear articulation on some of the issues, trusted voices, and we will be succinct because it's really easy to get overloaded with too much information and too much content. And number five, we want to break it down to concepts and paradigms that we can all understand. And then we also want to remind you that this is not political, and we have to clarify that. There is no way to talk about these issues without touching on subjects that are common in our political discussions, but the purpose is to address the real human issues and bring the truth and love of Jesus Christ into unsettling situations. So don't let politics cloud your ability to listen or discuss. So with all that being said, let me pray for us, and then I'm gonna introduce Pastor Lance, and we're gonna walk into this evening. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the Lord and King of this universe, that you love all of us. God, we thank you for the ability to dive deep into the truths of your word and your intent, Lord, and to engage with our culture, Lord, and the questions and the dynamics, Lord, that are happening. We pray that your name will be glorified as we talk about this, that, God, you would move and transform our hearts to understand your will and your desire, that, God, you would give us clarity on how to love one another and how to understand one another. And so God, I pray that you would guide not only Pastor Lance as he preaches and that you would fill him with the Holy Spirit, but that you would also guide our discussions and that your spirit would be speaking as we learn from one another and we grow, Lord, together. And so we honor and praise you in this night in the name and power of your son, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen. 
And with no further ado, let me introduce Pastor Lance Hahn. Well, hi, everyone. This is a huge issue, both in our society, it is coming into all of our lives, and uh, it's only getting larger. We need to get uh, up to speed on some things here, and we need to talk about it as a church with our hearts open, our minds open. I got two disclaimers as we begin. Number one, I am not an expert. We need to be very clear on that. Just because this is an issue close to my heart, just because I've done a lot of study doesn't make me an expert. Uh, what I'm going to share with you these four weeks is information that I've researched. It's educated, but that doesn't mean it's perfect. Therefore, as I go through this, I have to walk with tremendous humility. Uh, just knowing information doesn't make you a professional, right? So I want to walk with all of us to make sure that we do so with humility and gentleness and understanding that there are those that know more than us. The second one is that I'm only going to be hitting on key topics, I'm not gonna be digging into everything. Every time I give you a new truth, it's gonna bring up more questions and not as many answers. I get that. We only have four sessions together. We don't have unlimited time. And if you would examine the amount of books written about this, it would fill up an entire library. So clearly, there are more opinions beyond mine. I do wanna say this, however, there's a concept of truth and love that we're gonna to try to balance out. For example, our love cannot distort our truth, and our truth cannot diminish our love, right? Let me just say that again, because I believe it's so important. Our love cannot distort our truth, and our truth cannot diminish our love. My intent for our time together is to give you new paradigms, new structures by which to think through issues and to train you to think critically so you can come up with determinations. I am not a dogmatic teacher to where I'm gonna say, you need to believe what I believe and you need to think the way that I think and I'm gonna give you point after point and tell you how to believe. That is not my style of teaching. I would much rather present to you information, present to you structures, allow you to navigate and work with them. That means that I'm gonna leave a lot for you to process. That is intentional, that's on purpose. There is one last key question before we begin, and that is how involved are you? And we can answer that by one simple question that I would like to see a show of hands to. How many of you love someone that either has same-sex attraction or you yourself have same-sex attraction? Raise your hand. Anyone raising your hand right now? Now you're invested. Now we're really gonna study. Now we're really going to learn. Why? Because our hearts are engaged. This is not merely theoretical. These are lives. These are people that matter. These are people that Jesus Christ died for. These are the ones that we love the most. So with that, let's begin. What is homosexuality? Well, honestly, it's pretty complicated depending on which dictionary you read. Because one dictionary I looked at, and immediately it said it was attraction to the same sex. The next dictionary I read said it was, it was sexual activity between two people of the same gender. So I ask you, is homosexuality attraction or is it activity? You see, this is where we start getting a little bit mixed up. Everybody has their own opinion of what they're trying to say, but until we clarify our terms, we're not sure what each other are talking about. 
People ask questions, can you be gay and be a Christian? And they don't even understand what they just asked. We, we, don't, we haven't even haven't agreed upon what gay means. We haven't agreed upon what Christian means. What are we saying? So what is homosexuality? We're going to get into that in a moment. But I want to talk about these letters that you hear so commonly, and of course, they're in the title of this series, LGBTQ. Let's go through those very quickly. The L stands for lesbian. Now, I'm going to give you the definitions that were presented to me by society. I disagree with the definitions, but they're helpful for our conversations. A lesbian is a woman whose primary sexual and affectional orientation is toward another woman. My challenge with that definition is I'm not sure people should identify with attractions. That is something that we'll discuss. Needless to say, we know what lesbian is. What about the G? That would stand for gay. That is a man whose primary sexual and affectional orientation is towards another man. Bisexual is the B, a person who's sexually attracted to males and females or any other sex or gender identity. The T, which was added on later, is transgender, any gender identity or feeling that transcends or does not align with one's assigned gender at birth or society's idea of gender. In other words, who someone whose current gender identity is different from their sex assigned at birth, regardless of whether hormone or surgical intervention has taken place. The even more uh, recent addition would be the Q. And for some of you, that's the latest letter that you know of. Uh, just letting you know, we cut it off at Q because there's many more that come after that. I was the next one to be added and it goes on. We're gonna stop here. The Q has two meanings depending on who you ask. It either means questioning or queer. Questioning is put in as a, a broad category to say, you know what, I don't know yet. Y'all keep wanting to categorize me and you're saying, well, are you gay? Are you lesbian? Are you transgender? I don't know. I mean, I got so many things going on in my life. I can't give you a firm answer. You know what? I'm still trying to figure stuff out myself. The queer, you go, man, wait a second. I thought growing up queer was bad. That's why it's on there. It's a reclamation, a reclaiming of a slur in the past to say, whoa, 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 I'm no longer going to be bullied. I have no problem calling myself something that other people used against me. And I'm gonna use it as a catch-all phrase to say I'm different and that's okay with me. So LGBTQ, the terms matter and it depends in what environments you're in, how much they matter. For example, in many elements or many uh, social structures, it's a matter of respect. I was meeting with some pastors and members of the LGBT uh, department in Sacramento that they run the, the gay pride parades. And it was funny because all these pastors are talking, everyone was trying to be super sensitive. Everyone was trying to be nice and they're using the right words. And, and at the end, one of the ladies said, it's super funny because the whole time you've been talking, you keep talking about the gay community. You do realize you're only talking about guys, right? And everyone was like, uh, no, I thought that was like a catch-all phrase. Just understanding that the words matter. They especially matter when you're trying to talk about something that ends up in a debate or a question. You might be talking over each other. 
until you define your terms, we don't know what we are talking about, and we can certainly not arrive at any solutions, amen? So let's get that stuff organized out. There's two other terms that are very, very important. The first one is sexual orientation. Some call it sexual identity, and those are synonymous. But sexual orientation is about who or what you are attracted romantically and sexually to. Gender identity, a different term, is about who you feel and believe yourself to be regardless of anatomy. What does that mean? Sexual orientation has to do with more attraction. The other one has to do with who do I believe myself to be and is not primarily sexual at all. So when you start talking about transgender, we are not talking about sexual issues. We're primarily talking about identity issues. So for example, a lot of things that you may have heard in society is a lot about what's going on with children today and children wanting to trans over, right? And you're going, wait, I don't understand. They don't have the, they don't have the ability yet to understand their sexuality. No one's talking about sexuality. They're talking about, do I feel like the way I look? That's all it's talking about. So once again, I'm gonna keep blowing up paradigms and so we can now think critically into a new way of processing. All right, let's keep moving forward. I want to talk about a brief survey of homosexuality. Uh, it's not new. It's not an American thing, right? Oh, that's a Hollywood thing. No, it's not. It's not a modern thing. It's time-wide and worldwide. For example, let's talk about ancient history. Uh, they don't know when these were drawn, but the rock paintings in Zimbabwe date back to 8,000 BC at least. Uh, there's actually some rock paintings in Sicily that could even be earlier, but they are the first recognized recorded pictures of homosexuality, 8,000 BC. We're not talking about a recent event. As a matter of fact, in 3100 BC, you have cross-dressing in India. In 2697, you have a Chinese emperor who had male lovers. In Egypt, in 2400 BC, we have recorded male homosexual affairs, relationships, it's Mesopotamia. We all know about the Greeks and Romans, right? And it goes on. But the most interesting points, as I did a study throughout history, was that number one, the main concern about homosexuality in most cultures throughout ancient history was who you were having sex with. Homosexuality was not as much an issue as if you were having sex with someone of equal standing. Let me explain this. There was a condemnation on homosexuality only if you as a male we're having sex with someone of equal or a greater standing. And it depended whether you were the aggressor or the receiver. It had nothing to do with whether people were having sex. It was who they were having sex with. So, for example, a man could have sex with a boy because he was lower status, just like a man could have sex with a woman because she was lower status. Anyone with a lower status had to assume the female role for the aggressor was not held accountable. You just couldn't receive if you were a, what, upperclassman. So this is this whole paradigm blow where you go, wait, 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 what? Where did that come in? Class was way more important than anything about ethics that had to do with who was having sex. The other interesting point that I found was that homosexuality is found in significantly macho cultures. 
throughout the world. Let me give you three examples. From the Japanese samurai, their Shudo tradition, to the sacred band of the Thebes 300 men war unit, to Spartan warriors who were talked about in the movie 300, all those groups encouraged homosexuality between men for male bonding purposes. It was not for a sexual reason. It was that they were to have sex with each other so they would get each other's back in fights. Just all these different concepts you may have never even understood, but it's this idea of, oh, well, this is feminine, this is... I don't think you're going to find much more macho cultures than these, right? So it might give you something else to think about. Let's talk about a modern worldview of homosexuality. Let's jump around the globe for a moment. In African culture, Africa is diverse in its views on homosexuality, but it's mostly anti in a 2015 poll, it showed that 63% of African countries have outlawed homosexuality. Five of its states have it punishable by death and three give life imprisonment. In Asian culture, generally the Asian culture is one of the most open to LGBTQ. The first and only LGBT political party in the world was established in the Philippines in 2003. In Western European culture, Western Europeans are very open to LGBTQ views. 14 of the 25 countries have legalized same-sex marriage. Eastern European culture, however, is divided when it comes to these issues, but mostly conservative. Mostly same-sex activity is legal, but they will not allow anything like same-sex marriage. In the Middle Eastern culture, Middle Eastern culturally largely Muslim, is very anti-LGBTQ. In seven Middle Eastern nations, homosexual activity is punishable by the death penalty. In other places, it's legal but socially unacceptable. There is one exception. Who's the one exception? Israel. Israel is open to LGBTQ and is leading the world in pro-LGBTQ legislation. In Central and South America, Although they are somewhat divided, there is a freedom of homosexuality in general. In South America, all 15 countries have homosexuality legal except for one. And approximately half the country supports same-sex marriage. In Mexican culture, Mexico has had homosexuality legal since 1871. And same-sex marriages are mandated nationwide to be accepted. Most of its states perform them, and the ones that don't are expected to appreciate and validate any ones that come in from another state. In our very diverse demographic of America, you can see why there's so many different opinions. It all depends on where you come from. Hmm. Let's talk about recent American history. Recent American history, 1900 to now. At the turn of the 20th century, in 1900, homosexuality was underground. There was a lot of hiding to avoid persecution. If you were homosexual, you didn't want anyone to know, everything was done on the sly. In the 1920s, homosexuality started gaining popularity in the arts and entertainment and music arenas. In 1924, the first documented homosexual organization launched, which was Henry Gerber's Society for Human Rights. However, in 1947, the 40s were a mix 
After the World Wars, some were very anti, some were very pro. In 1947, Alfred Kinsey founded the Institute for Sex Research at Indiana University. He was the first one to start publicly talking about homosexuality was way more common than most people believed. He cited statistics that over 10% of the population was homosexual. That idea has stuck in people's heads, even though it's been proved since then not to be true. But he was very popular. In the late 1950s, homosexuality began a slow rise in prominence through media, radio, and TV. In the 60s and 70s, however, became the sexual revolution. There was an explosion of embracing homosexuality. Connections started to be made with other minority struggles. It started being known as a civil rights issue. So while uh, African-American civil rights were coming up, in the same way, they started using similar slogans, and then LGBTQ rights started rising up. But everything hinged in 1969. In 1969, there was a club that was a gay club called the Stonewall. There are Stonewall riots. The police went in and raided uh, this gay club. They were arresting people, and people got hurt, and they ended up retaliating into massive riots. That massive riot, that one day, changed everything. As a matter of fact, they rioted for three days. Out of that was the gay liberation movement. It swelled in popularity, not just here in America, but began to spread around the world. Now, I could talk about the 1978 Harvey Milk politician assassination in San Francisco, the 79 first National Gay Rights March, the 80s third wave of gay rights, but we'll jump ahead, 1990s. In 1990s, there was a war in the courts. There was uh, an aggressive finish to overturning anti-homosexuality laws. In 1996 was a don't ask, don't tell policy that was implemented in the military. In 1996, there was a Defense of Marriage Act also, which barred federal government from recognizing same-sex couples in any legal manner. In 1998, there was the Executive Order 13087, which prohibited discrimination based on sexual orientation. In 1999, June, the month, was labeled gay and lesbian pride month. In the 2000s, everything began to snowball. In 2008, the California Supreme Court ruled barring same-sex couples as unconstitutional, opened the way for gay marriage. Quickly, that was overturned. The fight kept going, and the focus began to shift onto the bullying of LGBTQ youth. In the later 2000s, there was a shift even more to pro-LGBTQ. In 2009, it led to a nationwide decriminalization of homosexuality officially. In 2011, the U.S. declared declaration in favor of gay rights internationally, and that same year, the United Nations endorsed LGBTQ rights for the first time passing a resolution. Do you know all that? Probably not, right? I didn't. I mean, as a matter of fact, just to get any of those pieces, I had to do tremendous amounts of research. Do you know that I have a team that works with me? And they were all doing research right along with me. We studied it for a year. Now, I've been studying it for years and years, but this team came in and I said, take a look at all my material and tear it apart. What am I missing? What am I not seeing? And they dug in, and for a year, they researched and researched and researched. Whenever we're going to have an opinion about any subject or we're going to try to have some knowledge, 
we always need to put in an appropriate amount of effort to understand before we start talking. We got to listen more than we speak. Does that make sense? So how many LGBTQ people are there, right? Because I mean, is this a little thing? Is this a big thing? Is this just a media thing? Huh. Depending on where you're from or what circles you run in, either they seem to be everywhere or it seems to be just kind of a thing that some people talk about. I want to talk about percentage versus actual population. Stats are all over the place depending on the source, but anywhere from 3.4% to as high as 9% would claim to be LGBTQ. The vast majority hovers around 4.5% of our population. Now, here's the problem. It's very difficult to get stats and data. Why? Because not everybody wants to check a box. It does not account for people that have same-sex attraction but are actually in heterosexual marriages. It doesn't talk about children. Why? Because you can't get very good stats on children. So do we really know the percentages? We actually don't. But these are our best guess, guesses. In UCLA, in their law school, they have a think tank called the Williams Institute for LGBTQ Studies. Here's what they found out, that it was approximately 4.5% of the US population. You know how many people that is? 14 and a half million. 14 and a half million are willing to check a box that that is their orientation. That's a lot of people. This is not something that you just sweep under the rug and pretend like it's going to go away. These are real folks with real lives, and they're in this room. Why? Because they're welcome here. We'll talk about that in a moment. The more stats, LGBTQ population of California on average is 5.3. We are higher than the national average. That approximately means 2 million people. The highest states are actually Oregon, then California, than Hawaii. It's interesting that Oregon has a higher percentage than California, but the reason you may not think that is because the highest percentage of LGBTQ people are in metropolitan cities, of which the highest is what city? San Francisco. Portland is second. San Francisco has 6.2% LGBTQ population. But if you want to talk about something that's neither a state nor a city, let's talk about the District of Columbia. Washington, D.C. is 10% LGBTQ. That's intense. Now, if you want to talk about things handled in the court system, where is the highest court of the land? Washington, D.C., right? You're going to notice that around the capital, Sacramento is higher than Placer County. How do we know that? Well, here you go. The highest percentage of same-sex couples counties are the highest one is San Francisco and Sonoma, if we're going to talk about local, Sacramento is 11th. Placer County, where we're sitting right now, is 43rd out of 48. So whether you drive from this county and cross the little line into Sacramento County, drastically different stats. Interesting. Now, once again, our local situation here is very unique, right? Because we're in the Northern California area, which means we're in a conservative bubble in a liberal state. 
which means Placer County is more conservative than Sacramento County, and we're near the Bay Area with the highest percentage, and they're relocating here. So you're watching shifts and mix and mix and mix, and everyone's going, I don't know what's going on. How come I talk to my neighbor and they know 32 people that are LGBTQ, and I don't know one? That's why it's unique. You're in a very unusual part of America. I also want to just share this, just personally. It really depends on what arenas you walk in. I grew up uh, with all women. I've always been comfortable with women. And I grew up, and my first job was in retail. Retail has a much higher percentage of LGBTQ. My whole life, I felt like it was everywhere. I grew up in a conservative Christian school, and yet a very high percentage of the men, the boys that I knew growing up, a high percentage of them were all LGBTQ by the time they turned adults. I just have always felt like it was everywhere. But that was my experience. That's not everybody's experience. I want to talk about Hollywood's impact. Because a lot of what you hear or think is actually done through your media. Well, once again, out of all the areas in American culture, arts and entertainment by far is the most LGBTQ saturated, yeah? Now, what that means is arts and entertainment control the media. So whatever they're interested in, that will be promoted first. For good or for bad, doesn't matter. But whatever is popular in that genre, they control the cameras. They control the news. They control whatever they want to talk about. All right. So, for example, if there's an issue that they feel like civil rights, they'll turn their cameras to civil rights. If they feel like maybe that there is something happening, for example, the reason why the Me Too movement got any traction was because it caught fire in the Hollywood arena and they said, I want to support that, and boom, it was everywhere. Some of you remember all the different dynamics when all of a sudden president, people running for president would start showing up on media shows. They'd start showing up on late night shows. They'd start showing up on Oprah Winfrey. Why? Because whoever controls the media controls tomorrow. That's kind of how it works. Now, the view of LGBTQ in America today is complicated. Now, in the media, it is super cool to be LGBTQ. Living it is another story. Please be careful of trying to say that, oh, since it's cool on TV, everybody's having an easy life. That is incorrect. Your actual living and situation of it is far more challenging than everything portrayed on TV. It's the same thing where you would go, oh, well, I guess it must be easy for those people. No, real life is hard. So as much as it's cool in idea, it's very, very difficult to walk out day to day. We'll talk about that a little bit more. So how did we get here? How, when, did it, when did everything become cool? When did sexual ethics begin to change and open up and stuff like that? Well, actually, there's been five foundational shifts that have occurred over time that play into this. I don't have any time to get into them. I'm just going to name them for you. There's five of them. The rise of relativism. Post-Christendom, radical individualism, the sexual revolution, and the shifting of what is called normal. But just understand that the landscape of the culture has shifted over time, so we think about things differently. Is it all bad? No. Is some of it beautiful? Absolutely. 
The one last thing I want to say before we move on is you need to be aware that there is a gay Christian perspective with brilliant people behind it. There is Christian scientists that are involved in it. There's clergy, there's whole networks, there's whole churches. You just need to understand that is another perspective in the world today that we need to take seriously and pay attention to. That we'll talk about a lot in week two. All right, let's dig into the meat of what I wanted to share with you today. And that is where we're gonna start bringing up uh, in a moment here, some, uh, some schematics or some, some drawings that I would like to walk through. It's something that I'm going to bring to the table that in my opinion is fresh. This is not taught anywhere. And that's because it's my own pseudo theory, right? Now I'm gonna call it a pseudo theory because this is not scientifically proven. This is an educated guess. Do I know what I'm talking about? I, I work with people all my life. I've engaged myself in so much research. So yeah, it's educated, but does that mean it's right? Oh, I don't know. We're doing our best. But what I do wanna do is open up your perception of what you might think you know. So we're gonna begin with the half circle, where does same-sex attraction come from continuum? Now, what you will notice is that it is going to have a bias to it that I believe that as with all human beings, we have derivations or we have deviations of the ideal. God came down and he made Adam and Eve in a perfect setting. None of us look like Adam and Eve. None of us are the same as Adam and Eve. So we are now all a deviation from the direct ideal that God created. When I use words like bent, I mean that if it is not exactly the perfect idea, then it is a deviation from the norm. Does that make sense? Nope. Praise the Lord. Here we go. On the continuum, you will notice on the far left-hand side, there is the term no choice. On the far right-hand side, it is all choice. I'm going to fill in these gaps one by one and begin to show you how complicated this issue really is. Let us begin with the first category, born this way. Now, this is the category, the only category that the majority of the world will want to look at or acknowledge. They're going to say, listen, I was born that way. That's it. Case closed. How could that happen? Let me share with you a, a scenario of a real life, but I've changed all the names and the details in order to protect their confidentiality, privacy, and identity. All right. Let me read through a case study with you. Steve was always different than the other boys. He didn't act like them. He didn't like what they liked. He was much more comfortable with girls. As he grew, his first sexual awakenings were attraction to other boys. Well, that was problematic to say the least. He didn't understand it. He felt condemned for it. He hid it most of his life. He tried to pretend his way out of it. As he got older, he forced himself to date women, but it just didn't feel right. The attraction never changed. He even got married and he had children but he always knew that he was living a lie. Ultimately, it was too much to handle, and one day, he shot himself under the weight of it all. The high rate of suicide in the LGBTQ community suggests that there is a feeling of trapped. There is a feeling of inability to adjust. 
There is an inability to just change because someone wants them to change. Trust me, if you are willing to override self-preservation, it's not as easy as simply flipping a switch. We need to take that seriously. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, nearly one-third, 29% of LGBT youth have attempted suicide at least once in the prior year compared to 6% in heterosexual youth. 6% versus 30%. Different. According to another report, for LGBTQ people aged 10 to 24, suicide is one of the leading causes of death. In my opinion, statistically, this has been the biggest category. That historically, when you had to go underground and you had to hide everything and it wasn't cool and it wasn't famous and nobody popular was like this, you weren't LGBTQ unless you knew you were LGBTQ. So that was the highest population things have begun to change and adjust. It's rapidly diminishing in percentage because the other categories are growing. But the other thing I wanna say is this brings up an issue that if you're a believer, you're gonna ask this question. How can somebody be born that way? Are you telling me that God made them that way? Ah, now we get into my territory, right? As a pastor, did God make us this way? Well, let me ask you this. I have a chemical imbalance. I have panic disorder. Did God make me this way? Kinda. What do you mean kinda? Was this God's ideal design for me? Or is this the effect of living in this world and just being born a human being? Does that mean God allowed it? Sure. Does that mean God designed it on purpose for a specific purpose? I think that the way God wants things is he wants his kids to be healthy and whole and strong. But when we broke our world, we broke ourselves. Are people born that way? I can look you dead in the eye and say, absolutely. You know, I don't know if I, let me just define it this way. They have no other memory. Regardless of what we're gonna say, how it went down, and we're gonna talk about science in a moment, but regardless of where it went, there's no other memory than same-sex attraction from a childhood. All they know is this. Okay, let's move on because that's not the only category. Second category I refer to as bent by evil. Bent by evil. Once again, we are on the side of no choice here. These are those that have suffered abuse at the hands of others. Most commonly, the bent is strongest in sexual abuse even stronger if it's same gender sexual abuse. The victim had little to no choice in the matter and a diversion of sexual identity occurred. The result was deep scarring, eventual remapping of the brain. And the earlier it happens, the more the brain is rewired. Now, let me give you a case study, actual story. Mitchell was a normal little boy originally. Sure, he was a little bit smaller and weaker than the other kids, but in every other way, he felt like them. Then one day, his uncle came into his room and touched him in a sexual way. He wasn't prepared for it. He didn't know what to do, so he froze. But his body sexually responded to it, and that made it very confusing. Since that day, he has struggled with same-sex attraction. He is not sexually stimulated by women at all, only by men. 
He doesn't want any part of it. He hates that part of his life. He cries out and prays every day for healing and freedom, but it hasn't come yet. That is category number two. Category number three, bent by environment. Bent by environment. A commonly cited yet stunningly complicated element of environmental factors, usually in the family of origin or early in life. The stereotypical example, right, is the Everybody kind of throws this one out like they all know what they're talking about. There's the mousy dad and the dominant mom, and that makes the kid gay and goes on and on. It's not as simple as that. There are, however, in the LGBTQ world, lots of discussion amongst gay men about daddy issues. Does it mean everything? No, it just means different factors have come in. Sometimes it has nothing to do with the parents. It's environment within friendships. It's environment within their personality. It's environment, but it's environment. Let me give you a case study. Tyler's been confused since day one. He can't say that he's fully gay, nor would he want to, but he certainly can't say that he has no attraction to girls. Oh, he can certainly say that he has no attraction to girls. He's not super attracted to boys, but gay porn does cause a stir in him. Sure, he's only 17 years old, but it's clear to him that he's not like the other guys in the locker room. He never really had a relationship with dad. Dad was mostly in his study, hiding in his books. Mom was his everything. She tended to his every need. Was she bossy? Of course she was, but she got stuff done. There was no point in relying on dad. Oddly enough, the guys at school started highlighting that he was dressing kind of girly. They weren't mean about it, I guess more than any other time. But even in reflection, Tyler didn't think he looked girly. He thought he looked good. The older he got, the more the girls started noticing his style. They started gravitating towards him. He had to admit that he felt far more comfortable with them. Eventually, well, he's kind of lost. Where does he belong? I want to be very careful on the idea of saying everything is everybody's parents' fault, right? But if we truly believe that our parents are home and family of origin has no impact on us, we're wrong. If you wanna go through and begin to do your own research and begin to dig into what are the effects of environment and sexual development, they're out there for you. Our worlds matter to us. They affect us greatly. Let's go to category number four. Bent by affirmation. In my opinion, this is the fastest growing category, but it will be outshadowed by category number five in a moment. But I believe this is the fastest growing category. These are those who have seen their, the transformation in their sexual identity over time because they crave to be loved. Let me give you a case study. Peter's first memory was following his big brother Rick around. He loved everything that Rick did. At first Rick was cool with that, but then it got irritating. Peter then looked for friends and started hanging out with Katie down the street. She was nice. He tried to hang with Jimmy's group, but they said he was too soft and weak to play their games. Katie said she could play with her. He got really good at hopscotch. But when he tried to show his big brother, Rick called him a sissy and walked away. A few times he tried to toughen up and join the other boys, but he had to admit they were right. He wasn't cut out for it. When he finally entered the third grade, he had a reputation as a wimp. Boys started calling him a fag and queer and a bunch of other terrible names. He hated it. Eventually, he hated them. Katie offered to hang with him, but that only made it worse, so he was mostly alone. By the time he got into junior high, it was a quote-unquote known fact that he was gay. To be honest, he didn't even know what that meant. 
but he couldn't change their opinion. Eventually, his loneliness became extremely intense. One day, he met Tony, who was super nice. Tony was known to be gay, but by this time, Peter was not going to cast away someone just because of rumors. To be honest, Tony and his group were weird, but they were nice. They were super smart. Eventually, they became his group. He wasn't sure he was gay, but it sure seemed better than the alternative. He needed someone to love him. We are going to address in week number four that every one of these categories is to be ministered to vastly different. This is where we have failed. Mm. Let's pick category number five as we keep moving. Works best for me. We can call it the Katy Perry category. I kissed a girl and I liked it. Either they try to choose it out of interest or drawn into same-sex activity by a trusted relationship, you opt to continue to pursue the newfound desire that was aroused. Let me give you a case study. Claudia wasn't a lesbian, but her best friend Rachel was. Thankfully, they didn't talk much about that and they could just have fun. They moved in together for college and shared everything. To be honest, Claudia couldn't think of life without Rachel. One night, they're drinking wine, and Rachel admitted that she was attracted to Claudia and thought of her as her girlfriend. They playfully joked about it for a bit, and then Claudia changed the subject. Two months later, Claudia broke up with her boyfriend, and she was crushed. Well, Rachel was there for her. She cared for her. Uh, Claudia wasn't a lesbian, but she had to admit that Rachel was pretty great. That night, there was more wine. Rachel leaned in and kissed her. Claudia was shocked. It wasn't terrible, but it wasn't natural either. Now she's in a predicament. Does she make a fuss about it? She loved Rachel like a sister. She didn't have anyone else who loved her like this. So she leaned in and kissed her back. They've been together now for the last two years. It's not really about sex. It's about friendship and bonding. Could she ultimately shift back to guys? Yeah, probably. But they won't be able to give her what Rachel gives her, love and friendship. Last category, category six, simply sex. Those who engage in homosexual sexual activity primarily for the sexual gratification it brings. Whether it's girls kissing girls for boys' attention or prison sex or swinger parties or boredom experimentation, it's just sex. It's not their identity. They would never identify as anything other than maybe bisexual, but that's only a rare few. Mostly they just like sex. However it shows up, great. Case study. The party was crazy. The hottest guys were there from the local fraternity. Carly was on all their minds after posing in the college calendar of Miss February. Tiffany, her friend, was the wildest one, so it was no wonder that when a song came on the radio, she started pole dancing to get the boys' attention. After two minutes, she grabbed Carly, made her dance. After the third swing around, Tiffany was kissing Carly to the howls of the frat guys. After the song was over, a guy invited them both back into the bedroom. Needless to say, Carly did more with Tiffany than she ever did with a guy. She didn't want to do it, but hey, she got the guy in the end, right? Besides, it was just sex. It didn't mean anything. Case study number two. Patrick never thought he'd end up in prison. The first years were tough, but by year 11, he had found his place as he was the boss of his ward. He'd never say he was gay, but he needed something. Who cares? A man's got to do what a man's got to do. He can get a girl on the outside, but for now, it's just working with you what you got. Complicated? You see, the reason why I bring up this continuum is because 
Y'all, life is complicated. And everybody thinks they got it nailed. Do I have it nailed? Nah, this is just my best guess. These are real people that I've dealt with. These are real lives. All of them are realistic. Now, the important insights here is that there's a massive disconnect. The world will only acknowledge born this way and the church only acknowledges simply sex. One says it's all choice, one says it's no choice and everyone's talking over each other and no one will admit there's an in-between. No one will talk about the other categories. That is to everyone's detriment. Stop making these grand statements and every time you're ever gonna talk to somebody LGBTQ, you immediately go, hey, we're all sinners. Why are you automatically throwing in into sin? Have they done anything yet? Hmm. If the LGBTQ community, and I only mean the leaders, begin to start talking about the fact that what? The fact that there's another category? Everything they work so hard for is gonna come crumbling down. If the church would dare admit that there's anything other than choice, everything they've been yelling about is gonna come crumbling down. Nobody wants to talk about it. That's why we're here. We want to talk about it. The one thing I'll just say as I close out on the complication of that is please let people tell their story. Please don't jump into a judgment and, oh, I know what's wrong with you. Oh, I know what's going on with you. Oh, I understand who you are. Oh, I know what your story is. No, you don't. Remember, the Christian mandate is to listen deeply and talk less. Let them tell you their story. It may not be what you want to hear, but it might be right. Let's talk about current science, right? Everybody heard the phrase, man, is there a gay gene? Okay, here's the deal, there's not. No matter where you're gonna go, you can search everything in science, no, there's no gay gene. As a matter of fact, there's no consensus anywhere about the genetic involvement with homosexuality. What do I mean? Well, let me give you a lot of information. So in 1993, we started studying this very intensely in the science world. We still have no consensus since 1993. Everyone's got an opinion. If you want to see your point made, you can go find it somewhere. Someone has a research document that's gonna back up your view. What we need to do to do proper science is to take the whole of the science community and say, what is everyone talking about? And then put it in the pot. You don't just go and pick out the one that you liked on Wikipedia to make sure to make yourself feel better, right? So let's talk about it. The World Health Organization, really there's three areas that tell the general world what is normal, what is good, what is bad. And that is the World Health Organization, the Center for Disease Control, and the American Psychology Association, the APA. Those three groups kind of tell everybody what's up. Doesn't mean they're right. It just means they're the authorities. The World Health Organization said this, quote, the causes of sexual orientation are unknown but are likely to reflect some mixture of genetics, prenatal hormone exposure, life experience, and social contextual factors. Sounds pretty complicated to me. The Cambridge report said prenatal exposure to androgenic hormones influences human sexual orientation. Wait, what? Now we're talking about hormones? The endocrinologist report 
Several lines of evidence suggest that there might be multiple developmental pathways leading to homosexuality. Here's the deal. Correlation and causation are not the same thing. Just because you go, well, this kind of happens with this doesn't mean this caused this. As a matter of fact, science is way more complicated. Science does not lock it in. It does not affirm any opinion. It's all over the map. So here is the current view. It's complex. There you go. It's complex. Everybody's been arguing nature versus nurture since day one, right? Everything is about, is it environmental? Is it genetic? What if the answer is yes, right? Here's the thing. We need to be careful on going, well, is it genetic? Do you understand that genes don't cause behavior? Genes influence things that lead to behavior. They don't cause behavior. Just because you have something genetic doesn't mean you act a certain way. So the word being used today and the word that we will move forward with is that current science is that it is epigenetics. Epigenetics, what does it mean? Here's the popular way of saying it. A genetic predisposition that needs to be awoken by environmental factors. A genetic predisposition that needs to be awoken by environmental factors. For example, twin studies. Have you noticed that there's been a series of twin studies done? If it is entirely genetic and they share the same genetic code, they should exactly be the same sexual orientation. They are not. So why not? Because it is both. It is and. It is complex. It's epigenetics. We're going to have a lot more research available to you, as I said, right after this. Uh, to talk a little bit more about uh, these pieces. I told you that there was three groups that kind of give everybody the idea of what's normal. The World Health Organization, the CDC, and what? The APA, the American Psychological Association. I'm going to tell you right now, the American Psychological Association is very clear. Like they, all their documents are very clear that homosexuality is not a mental disorder and there's nothing wrong. The APA stated, quote, the longstanding consensus of the behavioral and social sciences and the health and mental health professions is that homosexuality per se is a normal and positive variation of human sexual orientation. So they said it's a variation, it's a bent, but it is, it is positive and it is healthy. That's their opinion. So they classify out what is normal or abnormal based on their catalog called the DSM. DSM-1, DSM-2, DSM-3, right? It is the catalog of psychopathology. Since its inception in 1958, it has morphed dramatically. And it keeps changing the diagnosis. At this point, both the APA, the WHO, and all the other big groups have said this, it is only a problem if it's a problem for you. That's the new classification. So if you're uncomfortable with your homosexuality, it's a problem. If you're uncomfortable with your heterosexuality, it's a problem. But it's only a problem if it's a problem for you. There is some significant research done by a gentleman, a Dr. Mark Yarhouse. He is the chair of psychology at Wheaton College and former professor of psychology at Regent University. He has uh, an organization called Sexual Identity, uh, excuse me, the Sexual Identity Institute. 
And he has found different statistics because he's willing to look at a different area. There's a group called NARTH, the National Association for Research in Homosexuality. They see a very different view than the APA. So once again, if you want to find something that backs up your opinion, you can always find that. We just want to take everything as a whole and say, what is God telling us and what seems wise? That's our job. All right, as we're turning the corner, I want to talk about the concept of sexual malleability. Sexual malleability. It is my firm opinion that we're all different in sexual areas. And one of those areas is our ability to shift or morph in our sexuality. Now, the diagram is on one side, there is firmly fixed. On the other side is pure liquid, right? And what do I mean? I mean that you are heterosexual and you are deeply heterosexual and you cannot imagine anything other than heterosexual. You are deeply homosexual and you have no way to even imagine anything other than same-sex attraction. If that is you, you are all the way on the left as firmly fixed. So it doesn't matter what orientation you are, you're just, you're locked in. Then there's other people that slide way down the scale and they're like, man, I have no idea. They're the ones that would probably grab the cue, right? And they'd be like, man, I don't know, is it Wednesday? What's going on today, right? It was different than Tuesday. So I got a whole new thing I've got going on right now. I'm all over the map. A lot of that has to do with what? Different factors. Genetic predisposition, hormone levels, environment, personality, stuff like that. It affects whether or not there's any ability to move or shift on that scale. I'm going to share the ideas that uh, what happened in my life, I'll get a little bit more involved in that when we talk later, but I just have to tell you that because of my environment and everything else, and I've looked through all kinds of things in my life and all the things I've engaged with and been around, you guys, it's the whole idea that I look out and I go, you know what? Some of you cannot even imagine the idea that you would go into counseling and you would shift. You cannot imagine the idea that you would ever get into an environment and all your friends were one way and you'd start to bend. That doesn't even make sense to you. But you know what? Not everybody's like you. Some people are like me. You guys, on this scale, I'm not on the firmly fixed side. Man, there could have been all kinds of stuff that shifted around in my life early on. I could have gone a completely different direction, but I didn't. But the idea is I understand my heart goes out when somebody starts talking and saying, listen, I just don't see it that way. I have this going on in my life and this going on in my life. That's not hard for me to imagine because I don't live in the firmly fixed area. That's just not me. So is this good or bad? Well, it is what it is. But I'll tell you, if you're an unhealthy heterosexual and you're firmly fixed in unhealthiness, that's a bad idea. You might need to pray for a little bit more liquid in your life because if you're firmly fixed in an unhealthy dysfunctional pattern, that's not a good idea. But the more that you're going towards the right, the more changes you're gonna be able to see in your lifestyle because you begin to morph. Environment affects you different than everybody else. What's my point? Everybody's different. Now, 
Before I close out with that final thought, I want to highlight something that is super important. So if we could, gentlemen, throw up the uh, screen on SSA versus HSA. Okay, here's the deal. This is very, very important because this is one last thing I need to bring to the table because this is one of my most critical points. I believe there is a significant difference between same-sex attraction and homosexual sexual activity. SSA versus HSA. SSA versus HSA. What do I mean? Same-sex attraction is attraction toward, a drive toward, a desire for sexual and intimate romantic connection with the same gender. It is a desire. It is a temptation. It's how you feel. HSA is homosexual sexual activity. That is actual sexual activity with a person of the same gender. It's an action. Why is this so important to me? Because in my opinion, they're not the same thing at all. Remember I told you that when you look at one dictionary, it tells you that it's action. Another dictionary tells you that it's what? Activity? Well, what is it? In my opinion, this makes all the difference in the world. And here's why. I don't believe there is any condemnation for same-sex attraction. Why? Any more than there's any condemnation for heterosexual attraction. It is what it is. What are we going to do with it? Ah, that's a different ballgame. That's something that we're going to need to talk about over the next couple weeks. So I'll finish with this idea. After all the complexity that I've given you, I'll just share this. Y'all, you didn't get to pick what cards you were dealt. You are what you are. So what are we going to do with it? We can't choose whether we're attracted to this or we're attracted to that, but we can certainly choose about how we live. In the same way that I got a lot of stuff that's messed up in my mind and things that I think about, and you see, I have different problems and challenges in my chemical imbalance. That's just who I was born to be. But what I do with it, do I live a life of fear? Do I live a life less than? Do I live a life of weakness? Or do I learn how to thrive through it? Do I learn how to live with it? Do I learn for what does God have for me? You see, the number one thing I think that we all need to embrace, it doesn't matter where you're at, whether homosexual, heterosexual, the number one thing that matters is our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I believe so desperately that he begins to work out an awful lot of the details, but I'm going to say this. He knows who you are, and he wants to make you who you really are, no matter where you're at. We serve a good God. Are we broken? We're all broken. But God can help us make us something special. Amen? I would like to introduce to you our testimony for this evening. She is both a personal friend of mine, and she is also an incredible speaker, an incredible woman. She is a director of church relations for the Assemblies of God. Would you welcome with me, Reverend Char Blair. Good evening. 
It's a pleasure to be here with you tonight. Thank you for taking a moment to listen to my story. I, uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal home. How many of you know what that is? A Pentecostal home. Oh, I see some hands going up. I see that hand. <laughs> Anyways, we were so holy. Uh, we didn't have uh, we didn't have playing cards in the house, and uh, <laughs> we definitely didn't believe in premarital sex because that could lead to dancing. <laughs> yeah, I always say that I was saved from a life of crime at the age of five years old. Uh, my my father was a mortician, and my grandfather was a pastor. He pastored a little small country church for 35 years. The same people every Sunday for 35 years. My sister and I, growing up, we would play two games often. We would either play church or funeral, you know, much like your childhood, I'm sure. Some days we didn't know which game we were playing. <laughs> Have you ever been to one of those churches? Yeah, anyways. I remember in the third grade, uh, my teacher asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up, and my hand shot up in the air, and I said, I want to preach the gospel. And even as a little girl, I would get my stuffed animals together, and I would gather everybody around, and I would begin to, to preach, and my sister would play the organ, you know. And I was really preaching, though, to Barbie and Ken because I wanted them to get saved because I knew what they'd been doing, you know. I was like, I've seen you in the Barbie car on Friday night. Anyways, my family lovingly referred to me as a tomboy. I didn't understand who is Tom and why do I have his name? Anyways, when I was around seven years old, I remember thinking that God must have made a mistake and I should have been a boy. I was enamored with my dad and anything he did, he was always outside working or, you know, picking up dead people. And I was just, I was enamored with my dad. And when he would come home, he was away from home a lot. And when he would come home, I would, I would crawl up in his lap at night and I would fall asleep right on his chest. They pictures of me falling asleep on dad. There's pictures of me in his suit jacket and in his boots. And I was definitely and still am definitely a daddy's girl. I know exactly when he walks in the room that his eyes light up when he sees me. I'm the apple of his eye. He always felt, I always felt in his presence that I was invited to the party and that I was welcome. I knew on the other hand that my mom loved me deeply. I was her baby. She had had miscarriages between my sister and I and she was told that she might not ever be able to have another child and so when I came along, I was her baby. She calls me boo-boo. I haven't figured out if that's a term of infection or an owie, but, but I never felt like I really identified with her. I knew she loved me. I knew I was boo-boo, but I never really identified with her as I was growing up. And while I struggled with gender identity as a child, I never wanted to change my sexuality when I became an adult. However, I did feel that I wasn't fully a girl because I wasn't feminine like my sister, but I knew I wasn't a boy. But after I went through puberty, the desires to be a boy went away, and I was so glad that God made me a female. I realized that he really knew what he was doing after all. My sister, though, seemed to have been born with a manual, and I don't know, mine got lost in the shipping. She knew exactly how to do her hair. That was back in the 80s with Aquanet. She had it all figured out with the bangs. She could get reception with those things, I'm telling you. She knew she liked to wear pink. She liked dresses. And as I grew older, I became more comfortable in my skin. And I love the fact that God created me a woman. And I begin to realize that being a lady 
doesn't mean that you wear dresses and that you act girly. It means that you have integrity, virtue, and a pure heart. And that wearing flannel is a wonderful thing and not every woman dreams of being rescued. Sometimes she's the first responder. But when I was 10, we moved to a really small town away from my friends and my family. And I remember being extremely lonely. And I met a lady who was 11 years older than me. And my parents were working a lot. Not only did we have the funeral home, but we also in this small town, this was prior to nine, uh, having the you know, 911 when you call emergency, uh, we had the ambulance. So, but then we ended up selling the ambulance to the hospital because we thought that that was a conflict of interest. Like, should we revive him? We're not sure. <laughs> so my parents were working a lot, and we were, we were around this lady who was also a volunteer uh, worker at our church in the youth ministry. And she'd had an abusive past, and she would often share sexually explicit stories with me at a young age. And growing up in such a conservative home, I've never been exposed to these type of stories. And it wasn't until years later that a therapist explained to me that this was a form of sexual abuse and actually a type of grooming that was happening in my life. And an emotionally dependent bond and an attraction grew out of this six-year relationship that would eventually last my entire life. And when she moved away, I remember thinking to myself, I need to find another person. And I did over and over and over again. I remember the day I went to my mom, I got all the courage that I could, and I just wish I could, I wish I could show you a picture of my mom. I should have brought one. She is just the most saintly lady. She's amazing. I call her my own personal Mother Teresa. Growing up, she had big, little, big Pentecostal hair, you know? I mean, you could just look across the parking lot and be like, that family's going to heaven. I always say that the higher the hair, the closer to God, right? And I remember I, I just got all the courage I could because we didn't talk about these kinds of things in our family. And, and, and I remember she was in the bedroom and she was making the bed. And, and I said, I, I didn't know what my mom would say when I said these words, but I said, mom, I think I'm gay. And, you know, I didn't know if she was going to get on the phone and like call my grandmother and they were going to come and, you know, do some sort of exorcism or, or just what. I didn't know what would happen. But all of a sudden, my mom, she looked at me and she said, you know, you're just watching way too much television. I was like, really? Yeah, the Waltons, boy, I'm telling you. I better lay off of that. I remember I talked to a college pastor and he recommended that I see a therapist. And so I went to the therapist and he gave me lots of homework, but I was in Bible school at the time and I didn't have time for his homework and well, God's homework at the same time. And he charged money. However, God provided individuals along my path that would lead me toward healing. And there isn't one specific individual, that's just how God works it, that would get all the credit for helping me, but there or several, and I soon realized that I couldn't do anything in and of myself to make myself straight. And I heard someone say this phrase, and it brought so much healing to me that the opposite of homosexuality isn't heterosexuality, but it was holiness. And so I knew that I wanted to strive for one thing, to not get my focus off of God and to be worried about my sexuality, but I wanted my focus to be on holiness and walking and chasing after God. 
And for years, I always wondered when I would read different Bible stories, I always wondered who I was in the Bible. Was I Esther or Deborah or Ruth? Oh, let's be honest. I wanted to be David because I just thought the whole idea of like killing somebody with a slingshot was so cool. I just knew I never wanted to be the woman with the issue of blood. That's all I knew. And then one day I read the story of the woman at the well. And I saw myself because she had been in relationship after relationship trying to find fulfillment, but it wasn't until she met Jesus that she had found the answer. And while none of my relationships with other women were romantically physical, they were emotionally debilitating. And I learned about emotional dependency, which is the ongoing presence and nurturing of another is believed to be uh, necessary for personal security. You say, well, what does that mean? And, and let me explain it like this. When that person who was special in my life wasn't around, it was though I saw everything in black and white, but when they would come around, it was like my life changed and it was in color. And so I would wander from relationship to relationship looking for a nurturing home, someone who would mother me or to make me feel complete. I was constantly in the same relationship, but with a different face, if that makes sense. You say, Shar, so what was it that kept you from going out, saying goodbye to everybody, wandering off, and just going and living in the LGBTQ community? I believe it was the grace of God on my life and his call that kept me. I had friends that were healthy in my life. I had healthy friendships Friendships that had boundaries. And so I began to use those friendships as the standard. And so the hardest thing for me was giving up those unhealthy relationships. But I knew God was requiring them of me. And he was offering me something so much better. He was offering me peace, a healthy self-esteem, and the realization that I don't need someone to make me happy. He no longer wanted me living my life vicariously through someone else. And so today I continue to evaluate all my relationships and hold them against a healthy standard. The choice of my life, though, hasn't pleased everyone. Some of the people in the church that I work around think that maybe I should be all better. And Char, why aren't you married yet? <laughs> I don't fit in any of their categories. I don't check their boxes. And then while some in the LGBTQ community think maybe I'm a bigot for believing that homosexuality is a sin, again, I don't fit there either. I remember years ago as I began to this journey in discovering my sexuality and, and answering some of these questions, I started a ministry in my denomination for young people who are struggling as well with their sexuality. It was a ministry called Unspoken. Because growing up in my church, if you didn't want to say what your prayer request was, you could always just say what? I have a unspoken, right? That could totally get you off the hook from anything, from like A to Z, like I'm back on drugs to like I just robbed somebody. I've got an unspoken, right? I mean, you could, you could say anything. And so um, I would always raise my hand and, and say, I have an unspoken. No one in my church, though, ever came over and said, honey, what, what is it that you're struggling with or how can we help you? Or why do you always have an unspoken? 
And so little did I know that that word years later would lead to a ministry that would help young people who were also in the church, just like me, who were struggling with their sexuality. And I got the bright idea one day of doing an outreach during the gay community, Pride Parade. And my friends and I, we went down, and I'll never forget, so many people were, they were asking me, they said, why are you passing out waters? And I just said, well, I thought it was time that the church started doing something nice for the, community, the gay community here in Sacramento. And we got greeted with warm hugs and thank you so much. We were just passing out bottles of water, but I'll never forget, I was walking down the street and I had all these bottles of water. I had a backpack and I had, uh, you know, these bottles of waters in my arms and I'm walking down the street and I looked over and on one side, there were protesters. They had signs that were horrific that said horrible things to the LGBTQ community. And I looked on the other side and there was the pride parade. And, and for a moment, I thought, you know what? It's so much easier to be on one side or the other, to be over here and to be a protester that was holding up signs. You know, that's very sterile. You don't actually have to get involved in anybody's life. You could just tell them you're going to hell. And you know, I never saw that work. I've never seen. In fact, I went over and I asked him, I said, hey, has anybody come to the repentance and accepted Jesus Christ because of your, your sign ministry? Boy, and they had it going on too. They had quite the sign ministry. And then I, I looked over and I looked over at the parade and boy, everybody was having fun and they had lots of beads. I like beads. And I thought, but you know what? This is the place where God's called me to walk. It was in the middle. It was a lonely path. And today I walk in the middle. I stay on the balance beam. It's the place where struggle lives. And I believe it's the place where Jesus lives. Thank you so much for listening to my story. Well, you just got an earful over the last hour and 20 minutes. And, uh, and now we wanna move into a time where we're entering into another level of learning and processing. And that's discussing and processing the stuff at your tables that you've been learning. But we wanna give you some very necessary direction and instruction before you dive into that. Yeah, I just want to say that around these tables, this is an environment of learning. Uh, I presented out all this information, and then now it's time to interact with it. This is not time for debate and argument. This is time for learning. This is not time for just statements of, this is now, I know everything. This is a lot of questions and talking about what you're really thinking about and what's going on. We're never going to be able to deeply learn until we get to start processing. So we got to be talking it out. There are facilitators at your table. Please Please follow their directions, but we really want you to talk. We want you to engage. It's not just simply listening. You've already listened plenty, right? Uh, but now it's time for you to share and begin to ask questions of your own and have different points. So, Pastor Matt.
Yeah, so it's very necessary and instrumental for us to lay out a few ground rules before you go into your conversations and your discussions. Um, these are at every single one of your tables. They're probably under your waters unless somebody pulled them out, but they're discussion ground rules that we're asking for everybody at your tables to follow, and your facilitators have already went through these, and they're going to be instrumental in kind of leading us through the discussions, as well as making sure we're following these ground rules. And so just to highlight these really quickly, but you can read these um, or take a look. But the first one is, is we want everyone to listen respectfully and not be interrupting one another. Give people a chance to finish their thoughts and to get their ideas out. Um, ask for clarification if you're confused. Number two, we want you to have a commitment to learning. And like Pastor Lance said, this is not a time to debate. That's not what we're here for. Debate does not help you learn. All it does is fuel fire. Um, number three, we want you to keep the discussion focused on the questions. In a moment, we're gonna put these questions up on the screen. And those are the questions we really want you to focus on. It may lead to other questions, but we want you to process through those first and foremost. Number four, allow everybody a chance to share. It's really easy for one of us to have a lot of conviction and a lot of passion, and you wanna share and get your thoughts out, and then you monologue for 20 minutes. And that does not help because you want everybody to have a chance to share. And then there's some of you that you're, you're quiet and you're thinking and you're processing. And so you don't wanna say anything, but it is good to be able to put some of your thoughts out there and, and insert that in so that everybody gets a chance to engage with what you're thinking about. And then number five, this is a time to be doing sharing, not teaching. So, so use I statements, use opportunities to talk about how you feel about stuff, but this is not you trying to build a case and teach something new. We just went through a bunch of teaching and personal testimony, thanks to Reverend Shar. And so we want you to be processing that. So, so please make, make sure to go over these, adhere to our ground rules, go over the questions. Um, but let's go ahead and we'll put the questions up on the screen and then your table facilitators are also gonna have them. But the first one has to do with the continuum and we want you to make sure to look at that and kind of talk about what your impressions were of the continuum. And then the second question has to do with what Lance was talking about with the science and the psychology and with the information that you kind of hear or what's been clear and what is not clear how you, how you can understand and enter into conversation and the dynamics of these issues with just a little bit of that information. So we're gonna give you um, between 30 and 45 minutes to have discussion at your tables um, to make sure you really have a chance to have healthy discussion. And then we'll finish it up by kind of closing the night and we'll talk about the resources that are available coming off of this night. So go ahead, start into those discussions. And if you need a facilitator, make sure to just raise your hand and call for us. Thank you.